Hop into our inner decisional spaceship because this is Decision Space, the only podcast that takes place right here between the turns of your favorite games. I'm Jake. And I'm Brendan. And today we are talking about El Grande or El Grande. How do we say this? <laughs> I think it's El Grande. El Grande. Amazing, <laughs> amazing game. But before we get into that, if you are a pre-planner and you want to pre-plan your next turn with us, we will be covering the game Star Realms next week with a special guest to the podcast, uh, my good friend Paul Solomon and uh, the designer of uh, Honey Buzz, a game you, you may uh, know and love. So that should be really fun. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Paul is also a Star Realms pro. Yeah, so he he'll probably talk about this, but he won the first ever Star Realms tournament on the app. I guess they just started hosting tournaments so and he sick. won the first one. Yeah. That's awesome. And then later that night we played in a disc golf tournament and he won that too. Oh my gosh. Why didn't we have all the competitive games episode? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so looking forward to that. Uh but let's jump straight in to where is my mind? And this week we're gonna do something a little different and talk about like one or two games that we are most looking forward to playing when we are able to uh, do game nights with friends again, which at this point is truly imminent. Yeah, I'm really excited. So long as you can get the friends to you. Right. Yeah, I mean, everyone, obviously, you got to stay being safe and make sure everyone's sort of at the same level of vaccination and and following CDC guidelines. That's what I would recommend. Totally. What game? So how did you approach this, Jake? Like, I have, I have, like... If I could force my friends to play whatever games I wanted, I have like my my three games that I'd run them through. Do you want to hear them? Let's hear it. Okay. So first of all, it's one night, one complete night. So once everyone was there, we play a quick game of High Society. Reiner Canincia is one of his auction games. Uh, it's like a 20 minute or so game. And then we just go straight to Cosmic Encounter. We play the sickest game of Cosmic Encounter ever um, using a variant that we love, which is that everyone gets like three alien cards and you get to pick one and then you keep it hidden until you reveal your power. Also, we have a extra house variant where if you don't like any of the three aliens that you got dealt, you can just have three new ones because I think when you play that game, you should be excited about your alien and no one really abuses it. And then once we're done with that game of cosmic, we just play celebrity. So that's basically like monikers, except you write all your own sheets and it's a party game and it's fantastic. And I think that's, those are the kind of games that I would want to play at a first night back game night and i think high society is mostly for me just because i don't think it plays very well online but i love it and my friends would put up with it but then i'd be excited about cosmic and celebrity how about you jake awesome well i just received my uh, shipping notice for uh, red rising the new stonemeyer games game um and so that's coming in the mail i like to like today nice. as we're recording this so you know that would be really fun to come back to gaming and play something like brand new to all of us and, and kind of like get back into that vibe of like exploring a brand new thing. I mean, that's something I love about games. Uh, so, so why not do that at that first game night? Uh, but then of course I want to pair that with, and this would actually probably be another game night. Um, but another one I'm, I'm really looking forward to is uh, feast for Odin. So I played that on my birthday two years ago now uh, with, with a couple of friends and we had an awesome time. Since then I've acquired the expansion, the Norwegians and I played a solo game with it to kind of learn the rules. And it, 
and it, it, it's really cool. And those those uh, two guys and another friend of mine have already reached out. And like that's that should be our our first game night. So for like a more heavy gaming experience, I'm definitely going to be organizing a game of a feast for Odin with the Norwegians very soon. I love that. You're like picking up where you left off, but like added pleasure of an expansion on top of it and like recreating. That's fantastic. Yeah. It was funny with the same group of, of friends. I uh, was like, what do you guys want to play? Uh, maybe we could play Fresco because similarly, I had a really good memory of, of playing Fresco with the same group of people uh, plus one other. Um, and and I was like, maybe we could just like revisit that. And then my, Han- my friend Hannah is like, I hate Fresco. <laughs> like, okay, we won't do Fresco. It's like, I thought we were having fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Now that it's like two years later, she's like, just to be totally upfront. There's this thing in this in that game where like you have to like determine when your workers are waking up, and when in that play, it was taking her forever to figure out like when her worker would wake up. It was like an AP thing, and so like we were just like giving her a hard time about it like the whole time. Like, when are you waking <laughs> up, Hannah? <laughs> and like to this day, we have like a group chat where we play async games, and whenever it's Hannah's turn, people are just like, Hannah, when are you waking up? When are you? Waking? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah i was like so, let's not pick up where we left off let's move yeah. on entirely <laughs> yeah, we're like so we, we might have ruined uh fresco for it which is unfortunate uh but anyway that that was fun and uh, uh despite my where is my mind last week i i am very much looking forward to getting back to gaming nice same awesome well let's without any further ado let's jump right into our main topic we are talking today about El Grande, a area control troops on a map game designed by Wolfgang Kramer, also designer of games such as Tikal and Downforce, and Richard Ulrich, who designed the Prince of the Prince of Florence with Kramer. This game was published all the way back in 1995 and won the Spiel des Jahres, the big prestigious German board game of the year award. Uh, in 1996 it's a two to five player game that plays in about an hour to two hours or three hours if you're playing with my friend three to four if you're playing with my friends (laughs) on tabletop simulator um so before we hear your wonderful rules uh overview let's let's just give them our ratings and our slogans for this game awesome i Really quickly, too, I found this Bill Yara's text that they announced it with, and I think it will contextualize the episode really quickly. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Don't worry. It's like a very large wall of text. Uh, but I think the, the first sentence and the last sentence are sort of interesting. So this is translated from German, so it might not be perfect. Just using Google Translate as I do not speak German. Uh, but it says, since the success of Siedler von Catan, publishers have been less shy of risks with more complex game systems. And then it goes on and there's like probably like seven sentences and it says Wolfgang Kramer, a multiple award winning author, has put down his masterpiece with El Grande. An unreserved purchase recommendation can be made for lovers of more demanding board games. So I just think that going into this episode, that's very interesting to see where the Spirit of Yars Committee was in 1996. Um, I think that in some ways this sits outside of time. Or, or sits very interestingly, very specifically in 1996, because I'm intrigued by El Grande being called more demanding in terms of board games, especially compared to like the weight of games published today. It's like so quaint and adorable. Um, 
but it's wonderful. I want to hear your synopsis, though, first, Jake. All right, here we go. Uh, I did, you know, I, I wrote one down. So here, here, disclaimer, I don't like area control slash troops on a map games. I've bounced off many beloved games in this genre before. I just don't like how the incomprehensible, at least to me, choices of my opponents make these games feel too swingy and too random for the complexity of their rule sets. But today, I'm pleased to announce that a game has finally come along that solves my issues with the genre. El Grande's gameplay distills the area control genre down to the core ideas, removes opacity from the system that allows players to really engage in mind games with their opponents, all while making the genre more accessible to gamers of all types. Coming to El Grande in 2021, after playing games like Blood Rage, Game of Thrones, and Innis, the gameplay feels modern and refreshing. Wait, this thing came out 26 years ago? <laughs> El Grande is the definitive area control game for me. I'm giving it a 9.7 out of 10. Absolutely love it. What? That's amazing. Okay, that was so good, Jake. Here's mine. Like discovering an album out of time, El Grande made me feel like I was listening to the Beatles as a teenager, but only in board game form. 9.5 out of 10. I also love El Grande. This game's amazing. Actually, I take it back. El Grande at my first board game night, assuming I could find a copy because they're very difficult to buy right now. Like no other game I've played over this year has made me more want to play it live with people. This is like the one I would pick. So I think that actually makes it our collectively highest rated game so far on this show. Yeah, I think so. What we're pretty, like, I mean, that's pretty high. 9.6 average. That's yeah. Pretty high. <laughs> we're, we're what, like less than one away from a combined 20? Yeah, that's, <laughs> right. that's amazing. All right. Well, before we get into our discussion of this game that we both love, let's hear uh, Brendan give us his amazing Rules Overview. El Grande is an area control game in which players vie for control of eight different regions and a castillo in 15th century Spain over nine rounds. At the start of the game, each player is given 13 power cards ranging in value from 1 to 13. These cards are used to bid for turn order and also allow players to move caballeros, their influence tokens in the game, from their provinces or their sideboard to their court or their active area, more or less where their caballeros wait to enter into a region on the board. Lower value power cards, these cards are weaker for securing a favorable position in turn order, prepare more caballeros for play on the board, so there's a trade-off there. Once a card is played, it will never be returned to a player's hand outside of some special actions, so players must decide carefully when to utilize cards of different values throughout the course of the game. Each round, five unique action cards are revealed from five action card stacks on the table. These cards represent the available actions to the players in a given round, allowing players to score a specific region, manipulate caballeros on the board, move the king marker, manipulate the scoring value of a region, cause caballeros to decay off the board entirely, and an array of other valuable effects. After bidding, in descending value of power cards played, players select one of the revealed action cards to carry out on their turn, removing that card from the available actions for the other players remaining in the turn order. Cards in each of the five stacks also correspond to the number of caballeros a player may move from their court 
to the board and range in value from 1 to 5. While cards bestowing 1 to 4 caballeros always change from round to round, the fifth card is the king card, which allows players to move the king marker and move up to 5 caballeros from their court to the board, and this card remains available every round. The king marker stipulates two things, where caballeros cannot be placed, the region the king occupies, and where they can be placed, only regions adjacent to the region the king occupies. Manipulating the king is a key aspect of playing El Grande. Once every three rounds, a scoring round occurs. In this round, players first score the Castillo, a special region on the board that's available to all players to be played into always. Then players simultaneously and secretly choose a region to move their caballeros that they've placed in the Castillo to a new region on the board. And following that, the remaining regions are scored. After nine rounds, the players with the most points is declared the victor. Thanks, Brendan. So here we are. We're in our in our we're in our interdecisional spaceship in the decision space. Man, that's a tongue twister. <laughs> and the first thing we're gonna do is characterize the decision space, what it looks like, what it feels like, and recently, more recently, what it looks like over time. Mm. So I have a really Interesting question for you, Jake. I've been struggling with trying to fit this game into our framework from last week's episode a lot, but I feel like there's an argument that El Grande is a static decision space game or something very close to a static decision space game. There's lots, there's a few little sort of wrinkles in it that I think change the way in which that's it plays out that could make it sort of it sounds like it's like an oxymoron it can't be dynamic and static like we literally named dynamic to be the opposite of static um but the way in which it presents all of the choices to you you're making the same types of choices every turn though the cards can be different i, I don't know what what do you think i know you've been thinking about this too so yeah no I, so i don't i don't see it that at all okay great <laughs> awesome how do you see it i see it as um if I had to describe the game as a whole, I think it's dynamic. Yeah, uh, okay. you're you're getting, you know, each round you're getting more options of uh, what different powers are coming out, um, the way you're placing your troops out on the board also has a dynamic feel to it at the beginning of the game you will have uh, a very few in a few territories uh, towards the end of the game you you know, then in the middle, I guess I should say it kind of increases. You're able to really do a lot. You have a lot of supply of workers. I mean, uh, whatever you want to call caballeros. Your caballeros. You have a, 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 a good supply of caballeros to do a lot with. Uh, but then towards the end of the game, the decision space can shrink down a little bit again because you may have used up all your caballeros. They're already out on the board, uh, meaning that a lot of the powers aren't as useful to you. Um, and then also just the game the way it interacts with the scoring over three phases, there's three scoring points in the game and, and how the, the decision space interacts within those, I feel like also is sort of dynamic. What you want to do in the first and second uh, turn of any given round can, you know, you really want to like set yourself up in a way. Uh, and then in the third, you're just trying to put yourself in best position to score. So that feels dynamic too. However, there's definitely significant waning as well, mainly in the power cards you have in your hand, mm. right? So you start out with all of them, 
And then over the course of the game, you're playing them out. I, what, I guess you start with 13 and then there's nine rounds. So going to that last round, you only have five left. And that's really impactful as well. Um, so I, I think like those are the sort of the two categories that make sense to me. I think there's portions of both, but overall, for me, it feels mostly dynamic. I think uh, to add to your argument, the action cards are also winning because the stacks of cards that you have, they're never reshuffled, right? They're just big enough that throughout the course of the game, the vast majority of them you go through. So people who have played the game a bunch might be able to speculate on what cards are left, which cards are most likely to come up in the different stacks as well. So I think that's a great argument. I think that you're completely right. I'm totally convinced after your argument there. But I will say, I think what led me in the direction is there's really interesting and ample use of simultaneous decisions in the game. And I think that there's like static elements that work very well, but the whole game sort of shifts around them. So so you are right. I, I totally agree. It's probably best described as dynamic. And there's literally like the board is building up and then it's shrinking down and caballeros are moving out of regions or moving back to the provinces or being sent back to the court, just depending on different powers. So I don't know why I drank my own Kool-Aid and convinced myself of like something that it was static because it's very far from that. But but to to your point, I think one thing that like when you think about the feel yeah. of the decision space, um, like the type of decision you're making, perhaps one of the reasons you started going down that line is when we're thinking about static games um, like rock, paper, scissors, our favorite example, <laughs> right? It's really a mind game yeah. type of thing. It's yeah, like yeah. an iterative mind game that you're trying to think what your opponent's going to do so you can do the thing that beats that. And that definitely is the a lot of the feel of this decision space here right you're doing iterative decisions you're always putting out different workers on on the board caballeros on the board uh when when the castile castile empties <laughs> castillo I, is it castillo i think it's castillo, castillo. thank you yeah, yeah. yeah when the castillo empties that's like a huge moment of uh donkey space as you put it right where it's i want to put mine here but if Brendan is going to put his over there, then I need to do something else, you know, or like, this is my best move, depending on what you're going to do. Totally. Um, really so you quickly, really have to think about that. Yeah. So that for people who haven't heard the t- term donkey space before, I think we should define it. And that's the sort of, I know that you know that I know space that games can live. So you're making decisions based on the decisions you think your opponent's going to make, but then you're potentially changing your decision knowing that they know that you know that you're going to change your decision so in fighting games it's sort of called like yomi Uh, it's a japanese term for like being in the mind of your opponent so this game very much lives in that space and I i love how sort of on lots of different moments in the game uh the designers have just like stapled really important yomi moments all over it right and and that is what is I think makes this game work so well for me where other kind of uh, area majority territory control games, uh, troops on a map games don't is that it's everything is so clear, Mm. right? When we're emptying the Castillo and um, deciding where to put it, I can easily look at the board and see what your optimal move is. And if I know what your optimal move is and you're going to do that, then it changes what I should do. 
Um, and, and so, yeah, right. Like I, if in, in a lot of other games, things are so obscured by all kinds of different mechanisms that I can't even tell what, like why you're doing something. But in this, it's always like, it's on its face. There's the points right there printed on the map. Brendan's going here because he's going to like try to get the majority in this area to get those points or just dropping one cube in there to like try and steal a point. You know, everything is so obvious in a way that really allows you to be able to like get in there and engage with it in a satisfying way. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that sort of is what contributes for me in a lot of ways to why El Grande works so well when it's essentially a Euro game of completely open information, especially so playing in tabletop, there's a few things where um, it's not, it's open information, but functionally some of the information might be hidden from you or obfuscated and you're supposed to utilize your memory, which I think for me is one of the ways in which the game doesn't feel modern, but is better for it. So when people put their cubes in the Castillo, they're sort of supposed to say how many cubes they put in, right? Or when people play power cards, only the top, the most recent most card, according to the rule book is revealed on Yukata. This is all unfit information. And I think that makes a lot of sense for a digital implementation. And I think that in some ways, a modern sort of design sentiment would say that you you shouldn't do things like this. You shouldn't have a ton of information that has to be tracked by the players because they'll feel like beholden to tracking that information. But I think it's really interesting that the design of El Grande just basically says there's so much info, open information that you're not going to be able to track it all. And, and even if you could track it all, to, to your point, Jake, you can't always... It doesn't mean that you can make perfect decisions then. It just means that you have more information to make a more educated decision about what ultimately is going to end up being a simultaneous choice that you don't know which way it's going to go. So it just fits so nicely together. And there's lots of really dramatic moments in the game. And, and I don't know, what's your take on that sort of question of open information? And I played a couple of times on tabletop simulator without perfect information of knowing uh, what was in the Castillo. And the way it played out was pretty interesting because uh, I found there were there were times when it was difficult to track and I played, you know, unoptimal because I didn't know, uh, you know, do I need to put one or two in to win majority or, you know, and that and that can really matter. Uh, but also there are times when like I, I remember in our in the last round of, of one of the games somebody's like oh how many how many cubes does like matt have in there is it four and then somebody else is like yeah it's definitely four 100 because like everybody knows like matt's in the lead and like we have to watch him like a hawk uh and, and everybody's sort of incentivized to like share that information so that somebody can like drop in more cubes than matt um so it was, I mean, was it four it was okay. i think yeah it was and it's pretty e- i mean if you really want to pay attention to it it's yeah. not that bad um but but yeah, I think like it was. It's kind of fun in the way that it facilitates table talk too. Because yeah. at you know at other points in games, like, do you have any in there, Jake? Like, I don't know. Like, I think I put a couple in there. It's like <laughs> knowing I didn't have any in there, yeah. like that kind of thing. It's just a, a lot of fun. Totally. Um, so yeah, I, I liked it both ways. Yeah, I think that I totally see why the implementation on Yukata works, but I also love that it gets to have that dramatic moment and leads to the table talk in person with the Castillo. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's kind of hopefully, I mean, there, there's a lot we could talk about here. Um, but I think, you know, hopefully that gives you like some 
general sense of of the type of decisions uh, or the type of decision space of the game overall. And now we'll kind of get into some of the systems and, and the specific decisions you get to make in this wonderful game. Um, so let's just start with the power cards. At the beginning of each of your turns, you will uh, bid a, a, a power card in sort of an interesting open information auction type of mechanic. Uh, and I, I think this is a really fun decision, but I'm curious uh, what your initial thoughts are on it. So the way in which the power cards, every power card, there you have power cards 1 through 13, 13, uh, being the most powerful in which you get to move zero caballeros from your provinces to your court. And one being you're definitely going last, but you get to load up your court with six caballeros. I think that this system without the sort of court provinces system wouldn't be anywhere near as interesting. But the second it gets overlaid on the way in which you refill your court and you get to have one, you carry equity over between rounds potentially, so if you like make a decision where you load up your court early on and then you don't get a power card you want, but later on you can bid a really high card and then make up for it, I it's just it's so brilliant. Like it works so well and the rules overhead it is maybe the most complex aspect of the game. I think I that, would say that's like teaching it live to some people this was definitely the part that was sort of like it took like a little bit. It's like, wait, hold on. You know, just because it's like you've got the court, you got the provinces, you've got the what? What's the other one? Uh, I guess it's just the board. The board, Is yeah, the, I guess. Yeah, Spain. So, yeah, yeah Spain. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I mean, that does take a little getting used to. Um, but like, it's not bad once you get in the start of it, and all the information is really cleanly you know, shown on the cards. Totally. Uh, and it just, it all makes sense, right? The higher ones gives you less, you know, ability to prepare your uh, caballeros to go out onto the board. Uh, and then the the lesser numbers give you a lot and a really important benefit of whoever goes the last um, goes first yeah. to bid in the next round. So if you're sitting there with your 13, um, you know, and we should say that the whoever you can't repeat somebody else's number. You have to either go higher or lower than them. So if you play the thirteen, you're guaranteed to go first. Nobody can can top you. So a really good strategy is you know playing a, a low number in the second round or the second turn of any given round to guarantee that you can bid the thirteen in the final scoring round to secure the king and put it on the region that's going to give you a lot of points so no one else can mess with you. Yeah, I feel like what's so interesting, you called it an auction mechanic, and I, I think fundamentally it is, but you have so much agency, it feels like, because there's just enough numbers based on the how how long the game is, and you have some ability to get them back, that I felt like my decisions based on what actions were out and which card to play, the amount of skill that could be applied was very, very high. Like generally I felt like when I made a, a wrong decision, I was pretty punished. And also when I made a, a smart decision with the power cards, I was generally rewarded. And there's some really high impact decisions that they allow you to make. Um, and 
I don't, it's just, it's so well balanced too. Normally balance is like not something that I care about in a game, but I think in this specific system, it's so important for ensuring that there's equity among caballeros that get placed, even if you sort of bid wrong. And it, it just, this system is so smart and it works so well and it makes you feel so, so clever. And it, it's just, I don't know. This It's, it's yeah. really good. Why don't other games yeah. use this system? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so... I, I guess I have two two points yeah. about it. Uh, two more points about this, and the first is that I think it feels a lot more like a real auction when you're playing In live. Person. Sure, because yeah, the I guess the Castillo is one obvious place where hidden information comes into play. But when you're playing live, what really is important is what cards people have discarded. Yeah, and tracking that is really difficult. You might have a sense like, okay, I know this person played a 13 or was it a 12 they won with? Like, and, and not knowing specifically who has their 13s left and who doesn't is a huge. Whereas, again, in uh, when you're playing online, you can click and see what cards everyone has discarded, which makes it feel a lot more like a hand management type thing sure. when, when you're not sure. So I think, I think that is something that really does change in an interesting and fun way when you're playing live. Uh, without that perfect information Uh, and it makes a lot easier the other thing i'll say is it makes a lot easier to make mistakes which i always like when games allow you to make mistakes and when you know you've made a mistake and like when i when i was playing with my buddies uh in a four-player game uh when when we had a round of bidding and i played the eight and that ended up being the lowest card played in the round i was like wow, like that was a huge error because, you know, I could have played the one, I could have played the two, something lower and, and, you know, enabled so many more resources. Um, So, yeah, so that's, that's really fun. And, and, you know, how you can, how, how different bids go out are really fascinating because you can get, there's, there's ways you can get so much value. You could like win a whole round off of a seven, just depending what other people are, are trying to do, what they're going for, what cards are out there, uh, how many, uh castillos they have in their provinces versus the court um so yeah there's tons of ability to outplay here and and tons of ability to make mistakes which i think is something that makes the game you know really exciting round around and also just like really replayable um it always feels so different i love too that the hand system sort of doesn't have there to your point there's so much room for like scaling success or failure um with that system and so much of the play on the board is about uh estimating the scale to which you need to be aggressive in a region and that sort of parallelism there of like how much should i go it it just from an aesthetic level i think that the systems work really nicely together and they fit and they just it feels very um organic and tight like that it it just i don't know it as you said, I'm, I'm struggling because I'm trying to think and I'm reminded of my like going back and finding like a, a Beatles album and listening for it to the first time and just feeling like, oh, this is like a, an amazing album of music, despite when it was created. I just really appreciate this creation. Like it feels very whole. And I think for me, partially what leads to that experience with El Grande is the relationship between this power card bidding system, the court and the caballeros and what's happening on the board. It's just like the perfect blend of systems and the perfect weight of systems to create this like so beautiful and so uh, in such an interesting game that really has infinite depth. 
Yeah. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. And let's, let's get into a little bit about like what we're bidding these cards for, uh, which is that you get to then choose which of the powers you're going to use for that turn. So there's always five powers out. So there's, there's consistency there, but also little changes that really do uh, change, like how valuable, how much you need to bid to get an individual card. So starting with stack five, it's always the king card. Uh, And the king card allows you to move the king piece. It's just like this big wooden piece. Uh, Think think of like if you played Catan, it's essentially like the robber. And and it kind of works similarly. You can drop this thing Mm. on the board and it means so much because nobody can ever interact with the space that the king is on. uh, But also you're only ever able to put your workers out on the board in a region adjacent to where the king is. So you also can completely control uh, the flow of where people are are able to put out their workers. So you might want to put it on a region you're winning, or if your regions are all in the same area of the board, maybe you can just like move the king to the other corner and like protect like three or four of your regions at once. What's amazing, uh, one thing that I love about this mechanic that works so well with the system too, is you get to choose the order in which you uh, move your caballeros onto the board from your court uh and the, if you pick the king you always get to put five caballeros so you can choose do i want to move the king first if you've selected the king uh action card or do i want to put my caballeros first so you could like throw that's say you're like really far behind in a region and you want to move action away from that space in the board it feels so good to load up five of your caballeros in a region and then pick the king up and just slam it down locking the region from everyone else and completely shifting the course of play um it's the fact that the king is always on is so smart. And I think in a lesser design, it wouldn't have the sort of component of you can only place in regions adjacent to the king. And that just shifts where you're making the decisions uh, in the course of the game so much. And it, it's so clever. It's so good. Yeah. And it also it has this like, also to talk about like the dynamic nature of this yeah. game, like the king is of like the most powerful card in the game but it's only probably like the most powerful card in like seven of the nine turns of the game because there are definitely moments where at the end of the game potentially you've already put out all your uh yeah. caballeros or you don't have five ready to go in the court uh where you'll you'll want to use one of these other uh, powers to either get points or manipulate copiers that are already out on the board uh, or your opponent's um, pieces. So like there are moments where like th- for most of the game, the, whoever bids the highest is probably snatching up the king. Uh, but there are like these few moments where just like the dynamics of the game create a situation where like actually, no, I'm bidding that 13 because I just need that special scoring card uh, to ensure because it's worth like 20 points to me. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think partially, partially that's happens too just because there's so much happening on the board that you can't always be sure of the consequences of your king move unless you're going last in which case it's pretty unlikely that you're going to get the king if you're going last though it does happen sometimes because like you're saying jake the way that the cards can align and the, the way that those overlay with the board means that certain cards might be really valuable one game and might not really feel that valuable at all in another it's very totally very cool Yeah. Uh, So just really quick, besides the king, there are four other stacks of cards. Uh, So on these, rather than just being the same card, there's actually a little tiny deck. uh, So you'll rotate through different different powers in each round. Uh, As you mentioned before, once a power is used up, it's gone for the game. 
but there will always be a five, the king, and then the four, three, two, and one. And those numbers indicate how many of your work, your Castillo, no, Caballeros, yeah, yeah, yeah. you get to put out on the board uh, in addition to taking the power. So if you take the three card, uh, you'll get to then you activate that card and put out three of your Caballeros. So long as you have three in court. your court. So long as you have three in your court. Um, so just to give you a general idea, the, the one stack is interesting because it's only one worker, but generally this gives you the most ability to manipulate the uh, copiers that are already out on the board. Uh, and, and you can do some incredibly powerful things with that. So it becomes really important later in the game when you might not have as many copiers in your court because they're already mostly out on the board. All of a sudden, uh, these intrigue cards that are not necessarily as strong early in the game are like incredibly impactful. Yeah, and depending on where, there's sort of an inflection point in the game. Jake mentioned every player who plays has 31 caballeros potentially total in the game. And usually somewhere in the second, the the final third of the game, there's going to be an inflection point where most of the cubes are on the board, uh, depending on where power cards are. And all of a sudden, caring about moving new board caballeros on the board like matters very little. But moving them around can matter so much. And yeah, I think that the intrigue cards in general can make you feel so creative in how they play out. And they're also some of the most deterministic cards. Yeah, like I think there's one that's just move any three cubes out on the board, any three copiers out on the board. And if you're skillful with that, you know, you could make take a move that like costs your opponents like a cumulative 30 points by like taking away uh, somebody's majority, making them tie somewhere else, yeah. uh, which then hurts both people because they both have to share the way scoring works is if you're tied, you both share the lesser reward. Um, so, you know, something like that late in the game can just be incredibly swingy, especially if it's in that last round, like right before scoring or something like that. And I also think just just your point about kind of the dynamics of getting your copiers out on the board. That is a trick that even after playing this game a dozen times or so, maybe not quite that many, maybe like eight or nine, um, it's really hard to master, like getting the pacing of that right. I frequently find myself either at the end of the game where I still have like four to six left over that are not out on the board just because I wasn't able to uh, use my uh, bidding cards appropriately to get enough into my court. So I'm like wasting the ability to play Mm. some out. Um, with the powers or i've got all mine out and it's like at the very beginning of the third round which is like also not ideal um because then it's you know easier they can get i guess because they can just get like stuck in in a region um to where you you know ideally you want to win a region by just one caballero because then you'll be most effective but if you're sitting there with six of your caballeros in a region and nobody else has any in there it's like those are not doing like yeah you're gonna win the region but that's not doing much good for you it feels so bad yeah (laughs) you feel dumb yeah so so i mean that's i think that again like it's it's really it's really tough to to nail that balance just right. So the other stacks we'll we'll sort of go through them quickly because I think the game doesn't shout at you what the stacks are really, and I think I love that because the players don't really need to know. The more you play, the more you'll sort of get a sense for what they are and sort of the types of cards in them. 
Um, and then it becomes really clear sort of what the different groupings are. Um, so like Jake said, they sort of share effects. So the second stack, you always get to put two caballeros here, again, if you have them in your court. And these are like sort of thematically around decay. So it's about like moving cubes uh, back to the provinces or back to the courts. There's also one special scoring card just like peppered in there, um, again, to give you some sense of variety. And... Boy, was I surprised when I booted this up on Tabletop Simulator and there's a veto power that pops up in the two stack that allows you to hold it onto it to veto any power of any player in that round or the next round. I was just like, because that is, it's not in the Yukata implementation because, you know, that would be really annoying if you're playing asynchronously, you'd have to like wait or like check in on every single power. So I get why they didn't include it, but it's really fun, especially from like a tabletop perspective. Like it really adds a lot when somebody has that veto card and if they hold it for the next turn, it can like totally change the way you want to play. Right. Cause yeah. like you don't want to bid high to get the most important thing. That's just going to get vetoed. So, so it could even like potentially enable you to win, you know, or gain a more powerful effect in the next round. Um, just by holding on to that thing so that's awesome both times we played my friend matt got it who's like the most like take that guy ever so he's just like i can't resist this like this is perfect it's <laughs> threw so down funny. his 13 to take the veto <laughs> yeah like pretty much <laughs> and i do i appreciate that, that there's only one of that power the, yeah the game shows a lot of restraint in that way so the next is uh th- the three stack is just generally all scoring cards so it'll um there's different valued regions on the board. So there are regions that are worth five points or six points if you have majority. So the three stack generally what it does will say like score. If you take this power, you can score all the five regions or score all the six regions or score the region that has the fewest caballeros in it or the most. So it's all scoring. And this is like, I think this was something that took me like a little bit to to kind of get my head around when playing with this game, which is that like these cards are so incredibly important to winning the game. I think it's really hard to win this game if you're not uh, using the scoring cards at least a couple of times to get points because it's it's hard to get enough points just from the end around scoring alone. Yeah, same. I would say that in terms of signaling, that's one thing where when we first sat down to play, when I first played the game, I also sort of didn't realize exactly how important picking up some chunks of points from the scoring cards where I was like, okay, I'll just do well in the rounds and then I'll have a shot at winning. And you really have to know when you're supposed to be fighting for a scoring card and taking it either because it's really, really going to help you or you have to deny it from someone else. Yeah. One thing that's really interesting about the scoring stack too, is that all of these powers um, don't affect the board and they're all deterministic. So there are some scoring cards in the next stack, uh, stack four, where you do this secret disc scoring. So there's a component in the game that has all the regions on it and you set a region secretly so you can do that simultaneous reveal like we were talking about earlier. And those come in this four stack so you get a little bit of an extra incentive to use that because you don't know how it's going to play out. But again, El Grande, high agency, the scoring cards allow you to just, you know what's going to happen on your turn. And it's so smart that it works that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of goes against like my modern board gaming instincts where you're like early in the game. It's like, I need to just focus on like building my infrastructure, like getting guys out on the board. Yeah. Uh, But like, you know, if a a savvy veteran player is, you know, is able to grab 
three scoring cards and score them in the first round of the game while you're too focused on like getting stuff out it's like you you may never catch up or probably won't and it's like it's totally possible that someone just from the right card coming out the first time and they're just the regions aligning to get like 18 points on your first turn or something really wild like that and it's it's amazing so yeah and so that's just another fun like tempo is huge in this game and like being able to like pick your spots like when do i need to go for the scoring cards or even sacrificing tempo to pick a scoring card that's really good for somebody else yeah before they do it that because you can also choose instead you can pick a power and choose not to activate it um so it's pretty rare that you want to do that especially in like a multiplayer game right because like why do why should I be the one that sacrifices my tempo to do that? Um, but like if, if nobody does, then it can be sort of good game. <laughs> totally, and there are times where you'll be in the lead and you know you have to deny someone a card, which those become really important and impactful moments where you can maintain your lead if you deny this one card. So your whole turn shifts, and then it almost becomes a little bit of a catch up mechanism because you have to take a hit to your tempo, like you were saying, Jake, to make sure you stay in the lead. And it gives everyone else a little bit of time to sort of get a little bit closer. All right. So stack four, uh, as you mentioned, it's just variety. There's all kinds of different stuff. You can move the king. You can, there's a weird scoring. Uh, There's a ways to kind of like get more people into your court from the provinces. Um, Yeah. So generally these, these are kind of weird. They can be really, they, they fluctuate so wild. Yeah, I think one of them is like evict, which is allows you to like clear everybody else's caballeros out of one region, um, which uh, when I was playing, I actually ended up winning the game with one of the two games we played with our friends. And the only reason I won it was because the evict card came out the very, very last turn of the game. And I was able to get it and like end up securing like a eight point scoring region to win by like two points. Um, So it can be huge, but a lot of times. It, it can just be weird. I don't really like the secret scoring one. Why not? Because so that's the one that says like everybody picks a region to score, and if two people pick the same one, um, then it doesn't score at all. Which to me that is like that's the kind of thing I generally don't like in these games, where it's like it just adds that extra layer of mm. opacity to where. It's like, okay, everyone is just going to score the ones they want, but somebody might make like just a totally random decision to like screw someone else over and you can't trust anyone. So it's generally like, unless I just really needed it all, you know, it also doesn't give you any inherent advantage by playing it over anyone else. Right. So unless I just really needed to put out four workers or four caballeros and the five had already been taken. Like, why, why am I spending my turn activating this power that gives me no inherent value? Yeah, it, it's interesting. In some ways, it feels like um, this isn't something we've talked about a lot, but I think El Grande is a good example of a game with set pieces. Like the Castillo functions as that, where you know once every three games, it's going to come out and be this really exciting moment where it's built into the course of the game. You're going to have this moment of tension and then release. And I think the sc- secret to scoring is another thing where so some games organically you're going to have those moments come up at different points and i think this ensures within the design that at some point you're going to have an exciting reveal so from that perspective i i enjoy it and i think it's fun that it has the double think because if i know that jake really wants this region scored i might 
pick that region thinking Jake's going to pick that region. But then Jake might know that I'm trying to block him from going that region. So he's going to go somewhere else. And then I end up selecting the region that Jake wanted and then Jake gets to select another region. So I think that that's really interesting and lets you and asks you, invites you to get into the mind of the people you're playing with, which then, like you said, Jake, reinforces the table talk. So I totally totally see why it doesn't work, but I feel like it plays into the design so well. Yeah. Let's, let's move over to the talk a little bit about the Castillo. And we've mentioned this a little bit, which it's instead of placing your workers on the board, uh, you can always put them into the Castillo, which is this tower um, that at the end of the game scores at its its own region. um, And then enables you to uh, put your, put those Caballeros secretly determine where on the board they go, and then you proceed to score to every other region. So it allows you in in some ways to count a single Caballero twice, which is huge. But it also creates that interesting tension of if you put five in there, then you're going to get to score, and then you're going to go put them in a region. You're probably going to win that. But then those five Caballeros are kind of stuck, and you can... Uh, really kind of tie yourself in knots uh, by then you end up in, in that situation we described before where you have like way too many of your caballeros guarding a single region. And that movement happens simultaneously with everyone else, just like the secret disc scoring. So every other caballero in the game, when you place it, you have almost perfect information. You have perfect information of the game state outside of what's in the Castillo. So it's like you get to count them twice, but you don't unless you really overcommit and buy the privilege of knowing that wherever you put them, it's going to be really effective. There is some risk to it. And it's just, this mechanic is so fun. It's so good. It's so smart. Um, the fact that they, you do sort of get to double count them and it functions kind of as this like mini game on top of the game. It, it's, it's really cool. But also yeah. the king plays into it too because you can't go into the king's region. So it might be such that you're investing a bunch in the Castillo trying to go to this one region on the board. And then right before the scoring, someone else moves the king directly to the region where you were investing all these in that you're trying to double count and your plan just falls apart. And there's always something you can do uh, to try to pivot back, but you could really overinvest and then be punished for it too. Yeah. And because of the Grande Cube, which, uh, it, it, which um, is wherever your grande cube is on the board if you win that region outright you get a bonus two points which matters yeah Uh, it feels like a lot it feels like you really want to win that region so what i find myself doing a lot is i uh you know if i've got my caballeros in a region especially when i'm playing online with perfect information it's like if i have four in my uh uh region with the el Grande grande cube with the grande cube, <laughs> with the the the, the grande, um, then I really want to keep track. If I've got four in there and somebody has one, but they have three in the Castillo, I know that like my lead there is not secure. So like it really makes me want to either put another one in there or put one in the Castillo myself to ensure at any given time that nobody could swoop in and and take it. So it's kind of like an interesting like mind game there too, where you can really force somebody to like myself in this situation, like play unoptimally mm-hmm. uh, in order to, you know, I guess you've pointed out before that I play games like pretty conservatively. And I think that really comes through here to like my 
detriment at times in this game where I'm like, I don't want to risk it. Like, I just don't yeah. want to have the risk that somebody's going to come in and cost me, uh, you know, what could be like five points if they take that region. Which then becomes potentially an exploitable weakness within the system, because if we know you're always going to play that way, then we can exploit that. And I love that the Grandes do that because they two points does matter, but I think the percentage of games and you can score the two points through uh, a few times potentially at the end of each round or with scoring cards. So it's enough to matter, but it's not so much that it's game deciding in most cases. Um, And it's just enough. I I think the signaling is almost as important as the points, right? The the game isn't about the Grande Cubes, but it, it matters enough that you care. Great. But you also, right when you start, you sort of say, okay, this is the region. This is my region. I'm going to win this region. This is my region. home. This is my home. It's the homeland. <laughs> I have to care about it. And it creates that, it puts a little bit of you into the board that aren't temporary. The Caballeros, they're all temporary. They might come and they might go, but your Grande Cube, it could be moved, but really it feels like yours. And I think that leads to the sort of table talk. And it also, I think, gives players that, that little bit of extra, um, a game where you're making if there's two regions that are sixes and everyone has the same amount of cubes except for the Grande, and you're trying to decide where to put your your cubes from the Castillo, it's just a if you were deciding between those two regions, it would just be a true coin flip, a true 50-50. But in some cases, the Grande just inverts that a little bit and gives you that little bit more to think about and chew on in the decisions. And ultimately, the simultaneous decision is still random. But it just makes it that much more interesting. And this is yet another example of like, oh, this game is brilliant. This Grande Cube, any like you could have just left this out of the design. It'd still be an amazing game. But because it's there, it's like the cherry on top that makes it so dang good. Totally. I When I was playing with with my friends again, uh, when, when I first taught them, they're like, what the hell? Like you get to start with your cube in the region where six and mine's in the cube worth four. And I was, you know, trying to tell them like, trust me, like that doesn't matter at all. And in fact, I think it might be better to get to start in the four uh, valued region because people are less incentivized to come kick you out of your home where it's like if, if you're right in the middle of the board on a six, like good luck holding onto that thing because people are going to be coming for those points and, and contesting you. Uh, so I, I think it's really awesome in the way that it just completely, without any rules overhead at all, it totally self-balances. Totally. All right. Well, let's move on to the secret disc and kind of get into some of the decision space uh, around this. Brendan, do you want to kind of lead us into this segment here? Sure, absolutely. So we talked about the secret disc a little bit earlier, just because it sort of organically comes up in some of the scoring cards. Um, But I think one thing for me that was really interesting about the secret disc, Jake, is just how it's the sort of second time in the game, the first being the card bidding system that the designers put what Richard Garfield and Characteristics of Games calls a Von Neumann game, which is really just like a simultaneous choice game. So like Prisoner's Dilemma or something like this, where all the players are making a decision at the same time, so they don't have the input of everyone else's choices to factor into their decision. And I think... We mentioned that that is like sort of in fighting games, people call that donkey space usually where you end up in the I know that you know that I know. Um, and it leads to really rich games. And I think that for me, the inclusion of the secret, secret disc is sort of the glue that sort of holds the game together in a lot of ways because it puts just enough like little bit of randomness and excitement into the game. Yeah, I think I think that's 
That's really interesting uh, observation, and, and that's a new term to me, the von Neumann game. And it does add a lot here. I think it takes such a delicate hand to incorporate this mechanic into a game in a way that it feels satisfying and mm. not random. Yeah. Because, you know, we've talked about that in the past that, you know, what your opponent does in a game is essentially a random input to your perspective. Um, and I do think it can feel kind of random at times, you know, what, what people are doing. Uh, and, you know, I've played games of this where it feels like, oh man, somebody just kind of threw the game to somebody else because, you know, collectively we needed them to block the leading person out of the space. Um, so I think like this is historically something that really rubs me the wrong way about a lot of other of these territory control uh, dudes on a map style game that I've played before. But here, because everything else is clear, all the other information is clear, you can so quickly look at the board and see what's going on. That And it's just punctuated through at these certain times throughout the game, as opposed to like every turn being a random order or something like that, which you find in like the Game of Thrones game. Uh, that it's still palatable to me and satisfying. Yeah, I think importantly too is it's used just enough to not become the game, but enough times that it stays interesting and exciting. I mentioned set pieces earlier, and I think I sort of glazed over how I was utilizing that term. But I think in general, one of the real successes for me of El Grande is that there's those few moments, like in a movie, you have those really important, memorable moments that when you're done watching the movie, you'll always remember them. For me, like, I, I don't know, there's a, a couple of, I think uh, Christopher Nolan movies are really effective at this in terms of like, in Inception, there's like the twisting room in one of the dream scenes with Joseph Gordon-Levitt that like, I don't really remember very much about that movie, but I always remember that shot. Or like, even in his Dark Knight movie, that like, I don't remember a ton of scenes in that film, but I do remember when uh, the Joker and Batman are having a stare down with like their train and, um, and the bat cycle or whatever. I don't even remember. But there are these like dramatic moments that you walk away from. And I think that El Grande does a really effective job of that. Yes, Jake, it's a metaphor that doesn't include food from me on our podcast. You're welcome. I, I love that <laughs> metaphor. I, th- I think, uh, no, I totally get what you're talking about because walking away from a game, you know, especially like a big complicated Euro, you might feel like, oh, that was a really satisfying strategic dis- uh, game and experience, but you don't necessarily know like this was the moment that it turned. Like this was the pivotal thing where I won or lost it, you know, because it's just so incremental throughout, you know, hundreds of variable actions over the course of the game. And here it's really does have these moments where you're like, this means a ton. And it's it's very on its on its face. Totally. Yeah. And it's dramatic. And it's just so smart too how the designer integrates these. And I think I, I wish that more Euro style games had these sort of set piece moments where it's sort of a different moment of action compared to the core gameplay, but punctuates it and is dramatic and exciting. So I love the secret disc. I think it's an important part of El Grande and a really cool game component. Yeah. And a weird shout out to Christopher Nolan movies, but you know, <laughs> there you go. So uh, do you want to talk any more about the provinces and court system? I know we already sort of touched on, you know, that the the fun that can be had there and in, in trying to really just navigate uh, that process uh, over the course of the game to have it, you know, working with you and not like against you. Um, yeah, we, any, 
we touched on it. it so much earlier, but I do feel like if there was one thing to be said and, and is just the ability for it to create equity between turns, I think goes so far in making the game feel more fair. Um, the designers are really, I think, thoughtful in how they treat the players coming to the table because there is potential for the system to really be harmful to a player on any given turn. But the fact that the court system or the province system makes it such that you kind of are building equity as the game goes on no matter what. So if you don't get a really, if you have a bunch of stuff in a bunch of caballeros in your court, but you're not able to play them because you get a a low caballero power card, action card, it doesn't like wash your turn. You just get to utilize them later. And then there's the action card that sends all the caballeros from courts back to provinces. So you can, you have to play around it. But I think it's just so thoughtful in that way of wanting the game, even though there is uh, sort of like the Von Neumann games and everything to feel really fair to its players. Yeah, I think that is a really astute observation uh, where, yeah, it, it really limits how good your move can be. Because if you're taking the best action card, you either have to take a, a lesser turn beforehand to kind of set that up by filling the court. Or you're not able to set up a future big turn by adding more uh, caballeros into your court. And on the reverse side of, of things, uh, you know, if you don't get the action you want, you're probably setting yourself up for a future turn. Um, so I think I think that I hadn't really thought about that, but I think that really does go far to sort of mitigate the swinginess and randomness that I, I feel is kind of. Uh, endemic to this genre of games where you can have turns that are just so good or you know so bad that you're like effectively out of it early on right that's kind of like the the risk thing right where somebody can just like okay well i've won this game because i've like bottlenecked australia on the first move of my game or you know half of my armies are just like gone i I haven't played risk in a long time so that might not be right but or like in yeah, the you gist, you get the gist of what I'm saying. Totally. You end up in a situation in like uh, Mission Red Planet, another area control game where like you just have one extra unit in four regions somehow because it just worked out that way. And then you s- snowball out of control. And El Grande does a lot to sort of that can happen. But there's things to help players get back in the game. Yeah. Or even a, a Blood Rage, a game I've played more recently where you can, you know, you by playing the right card at the right time. You win the fight, get the reward, and devastate all your opponent's forces. You know, it's it's just so, so massively swingy, uh, yeah. which feels great when you're on the on the right side of, of things by just like a one or two power, but not so good on the other side. And you still have like a whole nother age to play. And you're like, yikes. Yeah, totally. One so I feel like one interesting way in which the game is literally unfriendly is the scoring system in terms of ties. Um, but in a way, so what I mean is because it's an unfriendly tie system, which you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Jake. If both players get first, they actually both get the second reward rather than the first place award, um, which is a really important decision in terms of how things play out. But I think this is really smart from a design perspective because it sort of lightly encourages you. If to not get bogged down in a skirmish that could escalate to a point where you've overinvested resources, because 
If you tie, it feels so bad that in general, you'd rather focus on an area that you are guaranteed to win or you have a really strong confidence that you're going to win rather than overinvest and risk a tie and then everyone loses. So it's great that the game is like, no, ties are bad. Go pick a different fight. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because there is I think the other interesting thing about the scoring is it uh, adds uh, a nice uh, textured overlay to the board because. In some regions, the difference between first and second is two points, uh, where in others, it's just five for first, four for second. So tying for first, you know, you're not really giving up anything. One point, no big deal. Uh, but with the special scoring involved, there's I think it makes one region worth nine for first, four for second, and zero for third. So if a bunch of people go into that region and the t- people end up tying for second, that's devastating right yeah. you're tying up resources and and getting zero for a tie um so i think that's like that's really interesting and it's something that makes the kind of the way you play in different areas it just adds that texture uh, that makes decisions a little more interesting than than if it was like universally kind of the same and the other thing i'll say about the ties working that way is i think it also does a, a good job of really uh it, it increases the range that winning scores can be in the game because some games if there are a lot of ties that just means overall scores go down considerably yeah. um so just playing this game i've you know uh, in, in the two games with our the with my friends that i played live on tabletop simulator they were kind of like what the heck like how do we all do so much better this game mm. uh and then we kind of realized that, you know, one of my friends felt in the first game, my friend Matt felt like he was out early. So he just spent all of his time just like trying to like screw people over <laughs> as much as possible, like created creating ties all over the board. He like dedicated his whole game kind of to, to that as a strategy to get back into it, uh, and, you know, and it just made everyone's scores go down so much, which which I think is cool because it means like this game really can play out differently. And it's not like, OK, I need to achieve this many points for a winning score, you can sort of have different strategic tracks to victory. Yeah, I love that. I feel like one of the other strategic tracks to victory that like can play into it a little bit, or I guess maybe even is just an interesting tactical decision that comes with the scoring system in the game is also the mobile scoreboards. To continue the movie metaphor, I feel like these are a great example of premise delivery in terms of El Grande, right? So like, in, in film or in fiction, you have this idea that like when you're telling a story, you should tell the type of story that can only exist in the space of the fiction created by the story that you're telling. And that's what makes your story unique or your film unique or your book unique. And I think in terms of El Grande, these mobile scoreboards are so interesting and a great example of the designers exploring all of the available gameplay space. I don't think mobile scoreboards is somewhere that a lot of designers go to in terms of their game, but it just gives one more way to sort of for players to engage with and manipulate regions, even if they're not wanting to participate by adding cubes to those regions or sometimes you use the scoreboards on your own region. Um So I just think it's really interesting that these are there. I thought it was a really clever sort of design, like little motif mechanic Um, and kind of a final sort of cherry on top in the sense that I think that one of the things I realized, Jake, that I love so much about El Grande is no one system in the game, This not the secret disc, not the power cards, not the actions, 
none of them monopolize the gameplay or like overspend on the complexity budget of the game. All of these mechanics come together and work so synergistically together. And I said that I've said this game is just so good a lot in this podcast. And I realized that what I really (laughs) meant is every mechanic in this game is working so well together and sharing the burden of creating a positive and fun and interesting and engaging experience so well. And seeing that sort of synergy is really rare. And I think ultimately that's why I really love El Grande. I, you know, I'd echo that. And I think the feeling that I get from all these mechanisms coming together and, and, you know, what it really feels like to me to be in the, in the decision space is kind of what I love most in games, Mm -hmm. which is that you're being pulled in different directions all Mm -hmm. the time. You're always, there's always a trade-off for what you're doing. And it really comes down to just kind of like evaluating those trade-offs. You know, I can spend a lot of, uh, caballeros in this region to ensure I win it, but then, you know, I'm, not going to have as many people out where you can also equally viably spread your forces across the map and try and pick up, you know, the second and third place scoring in a bunch of regions, uh, you know, but then it'll be easy for someone to come and block you out. And then you have wasted single cubes all over the place. You know, you want to go early in the round, but that means you're not going to have as many caballeros moving to your court for future things. So it's just, how can you, you know, evaluate all these trade-offs and piece it together into a winning strategy. And it's really satisfying. It's really fun. And it doesn't obscure that from the player. You you know, you you feel like you're making choices based on information you know. Yeah. As opposed to information that is too complex or too hidden to really make those meaningful trade-off choices. Totally. And then on top of I feel like that's such a succinct and great summary of El Grande. And then I love that on top of all of that too, it's a game with no, I mean, I think this is not totally true, but in some ways it's a game with no right choices. Like, like there's no, you can't solve El Grande because of the nature of how it plays and the way that cards come out and other people's behavior. And I think that it gives players the freedom to sort of go with their gut and to try things. And you can definitely make winning decisions um but generally there's no one strategy that we can say okay jake when you sit down and play a game of el grande this is what you're going to do and you're going to win because that would never work and that's what makes the game so cool totally um i don't think we're going to go into a whole turbulence here we both love this game i'm just going to give a really rapid fire couple of things these are my tiniest nitpicks the first is Sometimes it's hard to see how many cubes are Mm, on a board, like almost like if you had like a die or something that you could just like mark up like, okay, I have six and you have five. That would be a little bit easier than you're like trying to count. Okay, there's seven blue and six yellow and four red. And that comes up. Uh, It can also, even though I think that it is really mitigated significantly in this game, there can still be a runaway leader problem or even more common uh, somebody just getting lapped by everyone else. Um, and I think that's just a huge trade-off in these games. Like it gives players the agency to make bad choices, you know, and uh, I, which, which almost feels like in some more modern designs, like you're so, you have the bumpers up, right? At yeah. the bowling alley to like such a great extent that like you can't do that bad you know, taking any action and here you absolutely can. So I, you know, I don't know if that's a problem with the game, but it's certainly something uh, that can 
and has, I'm sure, make people bounce off of it. Um, and then that can be exacerbated by just some of the mechanisms that do feel more random just because somebody might need to somebody if you're already in last place, but, and I'm in first place and the most open territory to go into just happens to be the one that you have your like uh, El Grande Cuban, like that sucks. That feels terrible. Like, why are you going after me? Um, And that, that's the kind of thing that I think can happen that can really make it feel like if you're doing poorly that you're just getting piled on. Yeah. Those are my two, two turbulence. Very, very, but very small. Well said. And I think we should leave turbulence at that because I feel like you've sort of covered the, the sort of the rough edges if there are that many in the game. And I think ultimately the turbulence is probably just going to be like for certain players. It's nothing. Yeah, nothing I wouldn't egregious. want, I wouldn't change it. You know, yeah, I wouldn't, yeah. right. It's just be aware that like that is the game that you're playing. Totally. Uh, and, and, you know, the the cost of that is that we get this like super satisfying engaging and accessible system uh at, at a pretty small cost of entry totally it's like going to a campfire sometimes you're going to get hit with a few a few embers but most of the time it's just going to be cozy and awesome okay jake what surprised you as our closing closing thoughts what surprised you most about el grande I think the thing that surprised me most about El Grande to circle all the way back to the beginning of my sort of slogan and initial thoughts is coming to this game in first played it in 2020 I played it a lot. Most of my plays have been in 2021. It just, it really feels like the next step forward <laughs> for area control games based on, you know, what I had played before, which is, you know, Inish, Kemet, Blood Rage, game of thrones now but obviously this game came like well before those games and that's not to say those other games are bad obviously there's people that you know will do and and would enjoy those games much more than this one but like for me this feels like fresh innovative and like a step in the right direction um so you know just surprised that it just still has that like polish sheen of newness like it feels totally contemporary today yeah well said i feel like i it's almost maddening in some ways because i feel the exact same way and there's so many good mechanics in el grande that i'm just like how did this not get adopted how is this not all over modern games that are being made whether it's like the sort of equity system with the province and court we talked about some of the expense of that in terms of complexity or like the castillo it's so interesting to have this like modal scoring system where you get to score one one objective and then it can waterfall and it's just like there's so many smart things that need to be explored more. And they probably are. There's probably games that I'm not thinking of. But ultimately, I, I just feel like it, it's a, a wild home run. And it's a game that I would play anytime. And I can't wait to play it offline with a table of people when I get the chance. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got a, a copy getting collecting dust on, on your shelf, uh, let us know. We're in the market. <laughs> yeah, totally. Especially if it's not $200. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um all right. Well, this has been another episode of Decision Space. Uh we are approaching the end of our journey. You can exit the interdecisional spaceship on your left. Uh on your way out, please make sure to uh, you know, like and subscribe and join our Discord, ring the bell and leave us a review and tell a friend.
Just just those seven things. Those seven things. <laughs> and if you do leave us a review, especially if you leave it uh, on iTunes with text, we will most likely, it depends on what you say, but most likely we'll read it out no, loud. We'll, we'll read anything. Unless it's like, <laughs> a, unless it's like straight up like ad for like sketchy like shoe store, online shoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh but if it's know, about this podcast we'll read it we'll you'll read be it. our first review yeah it be so exciting so with that thanks for this journey in our interdecisional spaceship and we'll see you uh right back here we'll have the ship all fueled up for star realms next week with paul solomon sounds great take care everyone bye y'all you are now exiting the decision space thanks for listening Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game. Mm-hmm.